Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today is my colleague Kate Bealey. We're also delighted to have a special guest in the studio. James Baxter is a partner at Tideway Investment Partners. In today's show, we're going to discuss what to think about when transferring out of a final salary scheme. And we're also going to look at how to use central banking activity to your advantage by investing with quantitative easing in mind. Plus, we'll have a quick look at the Chinese companies that may be joining our emerging markets fund. But first to this week's autumn statement in which there was lots of pensioners but little for savers. There was actually unprecedented support for pensioners because the basic state pension is going to rise next next tax year by um, £3.35 to a, the grand sum of £119.30 a week. And the Chancellor also confirmed that there's going to be this new single tier state pension coming in next April and that is going to be £155.65 a week, so more generous. However, the individual savings account allowance, which lots of us are using to save for our retirement, is being held flat next year at £15,240. James, can I just ask you what you made of the autumn statement? What did you think? Was it good news, bad news? Yeah, I think that from uh, our perspective and a lot of people's uh, perspective in the industry, I think one of the good things was that they just didn't fiddle around again with the pension rules. I mean, we've had an unprecedented level of changes in pension rules everybody's sort of really reeling from it and just getting sorted out to deliver pensions freedoms and all these changes so i think that was really a, a wise thing to do to give everybody a period of time where we know what the rules are going to be and basically we can plan now for another year at least uh, with the rules that we all understand and know so you know things like getting rid of the tax-free cash or changing the um tax relief on contributions, all that has been put to one side for a while. So we've got some stability in rules, which I think is is really good news. Although there is a consultation on tax relief, which is yet to report. And there there had been some expectations that he might actually do something related to that in anticipation of pensions tax relief being cut next year he didn't so really there's a there's still this window of opportunity for people to benefit from higher rate tax relief on pensions over the next few months so you know is it a good time to make a pension contribution now i think it's always a good time to make a pension (laughs) contribution i don't think i've ever ever had anybody come back to me and say oh james i've got too much money in my pension (laughs) it just doesn't happen so i think it's always if you can afford to do it it's always a good thing to do yeah, that there's a lot of call and I suspect the way we might head with tax relief is will be a standard rate of tax relief on pension contributions rather than the, the marginal rates that we have on income tax. So, you know, that may come in the future. But I think, you know, with all these things, um, I wouldn't get too excited about changes. I think you just have to make, you know, the best of what you can out of the rules as we understand them today. I mean, the one thing we can be assured, I think, in the next two or three years, they will fiddle around with the rules again. They can't stop themselves. They're politicians. So there will be changes down, you know, down the line. We just have to get on and try and make provisions for ourselves and, um, you know, do the best we can with the rules we have. I mean, the state pension itself has been subject to a, to a lot of changes over the years and probably could come under more pressure. I mean, they've been introducing this sort of supposedly more generous single tier pension next year but not everybody's actually going to get that no, no. So well, there's a couple of messages i think on state pension i mean i think you know people underestimate just how generous it is it is a generous um benefit for us all and i mean if you're a couple with uh with these maximum um second tier pension you're going to have you know nigh on sixteen thousand pounds a year of index linked income um 
for the rest of your life, which is you know, which, which is tax free if you you know you've got your nil rate bands. So that's a pretty nice base income for a couple to have if they've paid off their mortgage, paid off the debts, and they're living, you know, in later life. So I think. Um, as long as it materializes, it is something that you know people can plan on receiving. But of course, as you said, Myra, you know, we uh, not everybody's going to get it. And I wondered when I was going to get payback for my sort of fifty or sixty thousand pounds in my pension fund that I got from contracting out. And now we know where that payback's coming going to come. So basically, if you've been contracted out at any point during your uh, your working career, then you're not going to get the full pension unless you start topping up um, using one of these top-up schemes. So, you know, it's a generous benefit, but it would be interesting to see just... I think there was some a figure in your article suggesting only 20,000 people would get the... Yeah, there was that. that was, <laughs> those are figures that came from the Department for Work and Pensions saying, yeah. you know, they, they know that not everybody's going to that's get this That's quite a small pension. number yes. of people, yeah. actually, who are entitled to the full rate. So yeah. that's quite interesting, yeah. Obviously, things will improve as... as, as um, it unfolds really but I mean, a lot of cynicism I would say amongst uh, people my age that we'll even get one because the, the other thing that's happening is that the date that you receive it is being pushed further into the future so I won't even get mine at 65 now I think I've got to work till 67 and a half before I get mine so you know, and, it, and, it, and it's going further and further out. So I think anybody under 30 they're looking at being 70 before they get anything from the state yes. aren't they so yes. It could get pushed out even further. So it's sort of good news and bad news. Then we've got this triple lock thing going on, which means it's increasing at a fixed rate. So even though CPI now is effectively zero and the government's still putting in these increases each year, which uh, is is very generous for those who get it. (laughs) (laughs) And now for somebody who is making provision for his future. In this week's portfolio clinic, we look at the case study of a 54-year-old investor who has has made investments um, himself of more than £600,000, putting it away in ISAs, etc. But he's also been offered a £1.46 million transfer value from his final salary pension scheme. So that's a a gold-plated pension, really, that lots of people are very lucky to still have. But he's thinking of getting out of this pension and sort of buying out his assets and then putting it into a self-invested personal pension to manage himself. And the main reason he's thinking of doing it so that he can pass on some of that money to his children. I'm going to quote the chap. He said, um, Wisdom has always said that you should never leave a final salary scheme, but I'm conscious that on my death, the benefits halve, and on the death of my spouse, the benefits are lost completely. Now, um, James, you were one of the experts on this portfolio. What does an investor need to consider um, when making a final salary transfer decision, you know? Right. Well, I mean, let's just start by just looking at the transaction broadly. So um, before we talk specifically about this individual. So uh, I think there's about 10 million people in the UK who've got defined benefit or deferred members of defined benefit schemes. So this this transaction applies to people who've left uh, a company and who've got some pension benefits built up from when they were working there. So there's about 10 million of them in the UK. But, of course, a lot of those people will be in um, state-run schemes which are not allowing transfers because actually they don't have any assets backing the schemes. So it's really about people who are in private sector schemes where there's a pension fund that's got a load of money um, sitting on reserves ready to pay their benefits in years to come. And these schemes are offering the transfer values for people who are prepared to go away. 
Now, it's, it's a transaction that's been available for a long time, but it really has become a lot more interesting in the last um, 24 months with the rule changes introduced last year in pension freedoms. So I guess, firstly, there's no uh, requirement to buy an annuity anymore. I mean, in fact, the, you know, that has been changing over a period of time. But, you know, the Chancellor made this big um, statement, nobody ever has to buy an annuity anymore. So um, that means that people can make withdrawals of any size from zero right up to 100% of the fund if they want to. But probably the bigger issue, and particularly in this uh, individual's case, is that you also abolished a pretty horrendous 55% tax charge that was levied against any value left in the account on the second death. So um, in a heartbeat, he took pensions from being very unattractive um, tax wrappers at death to actually being very attractive because they are trusts. They fall outside of the estate for inheritance tax. So they can actually now be a very nice um, account to pass on to the next generation. So suddenly it's a very chalk and cheese uh, kind of choice for people like this uh, as to whether they want to take that annuity style income so he'll be able to have a, a cash sum from the the pension scheme that he's in and then he gets a fixed income guaranteed for life probably drops by two-thirds or a half for his widow um, he doesn't tell us in the uh, in the case study how much the pension is but we can have a guess at that in a second um, and then uh, he now has this choice so he can take the transfer. He's, you know, instead of managing 600,000, he can be managing £2 million of wealth, um, which is you know, a massive increase for him. And, um, and he'll have the ability to draw when he wants and pass it on to his kids. I guess the, the next thing, quite quickly to say, is it's a massive transaction. You know, it's 1.4 million. It's probably the biggest financial transaction he'll ever do in his life. So uh, he needs to take advice, and it's actually a legal requirement that he does take some advice to do this. So um, I'm afraid uh, even your uh, great DIY investor <laughs> readers will have to find themselves an advisor to talk them through this transaction. It might be a bit tricky, actually, because not all financial advisors will advise on this sort of transaction. Well, they're a bit bit scared of any yes, comeback. Uh, so, absolutely. Yes. So um, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, as we're doing it, yeah. <laughs> there's a bit of a supply and demand uh, overload. But yeah, so I mean, I guess there's a couple of things. Firstly, in order to advise on it, you have to have specialist qualifications. I think there's only 2000 advisors in the UK uh, with specialist qualifications. And a lot of those will be working for companies who are just not going to ever give this kind of advice because it's complex. Um, the consequences of getting it wrong are obviously pretty horrible. And um, uh, unfortunately, advisors have been somewhat uh, burnt in the past by the regulators and complaints and the sort of historic reviews. So lots of advisors, probably quite rightly, are pretty scared of getting involved in this kind of pensions advice on a half-hearted basis. You either seem to have, you know, our view is you either it's quite a specialist subject. I, I liken it to sort of putting in uh, implants in a in a mouth. Most dentists could probably do one if they wanted to, but most will offload that to a specialist because it's it's a pretty nasty transaction to do. And if you get it wrong, you know, the consequences are pretty grim. So there will be more people doing it, I'm sure, in years to come. But there's probably enough to, you know, satisfy the demand, hopefully. So he, I mean, this particular um, investor was worried about how he was going to manage this enormous sum of money that he would suddenly 
have yeah. you know, and how, how he yeah. structure it all and he was a bit daunted by that prospect as well not just the the momentous decision whether to take the money or not you know what do you do with the money when you've got it yeah. have you got any tips on that yeah and i think he's right to be daunted because um you know there's a massive difference between the six hundred thousand that he's acquired probably accumulated over years He's probably taken quite a high-risk approach. He's been invested in equities primarily. He's bought individual equities. Um, but as he will have seen in August, you know, when the market sells off, you get um, quite large movements in the value of the account. The defined benefit transfer is is coming in cash. So he will start quite literally on day one with 1.46 million of cash. So to jump straight into the markets with with that money, uh, you know, you could easily be down five, ten percent, and suddenly that's a very meaningful amount of money. You know, if he goes down ten percent on his portfolio, that's a hundred and forty thousand all of a sudden. So, you know, this is a lot of money. Um, and then uh, the other big thing, of course, is that if it's you know, if he's actually going to draw on it at some point, then. Um, uh, he needs to be very, very careful about volatility because, you know, volatility is your friend when you're accumulating assets because you can buy assets when they're cheaper, but it's your enemy. And we, you know, we call it pound cost averaging on the way up, but it's pound cost savaging on the way down. So when you're withdrawing, um, if you start getting a lot of volatility, you can be a forced seller of assets at a loss, and that you know that's really bad news. But it's perfectly um, feasible for him to do all of this. You know, we, we've got some good tips on how to structure the asset allocation, etc. In the in the piece, so you know he's yeah, and I, uh, I think the guy's got a lot going for yeah. him on doing the transactions. So you know, a couple of things you could say. Look, I mean, first off, most people would be probably quite surprised at how little pension income he's actually giving up to give that. So. Um, it's not uncommon for people to see a 30 times multiple for a well-funded age 60 pension. So that means he may only be giving up 45 to 50,000 pounds of, of pension income. Uh, and, and the first thing that springs to mind is that you, you obviously one nice little trick that you can do is keep your income withdrawals to within the basic rate tax band. So obviously, you know, if you want to draw more than 42,000 a year, um, then you know you're losing forty um, percent of whatever you make as withdrawals because you're paying those higher rates. So immediately he probably could put himself in an advantage position by taking the maximum tax-free cash, organising investments between him and his wife, using ICES to the maximum, and then maybe restricting his withdrawals on the fund to what takes him up to the to the nil rate band. Oh, so, sorry, the higher rate tax plan. So there's lots of good good tax planning he can absolutely, think about, and that, yeah. and I think that's where that's where it really when you know where you can win out with the pension freedoms is that you can actually do things in a tax efficient way, and actually, um, in some ways, tax rules are quite soft for pensioners um, these days. So you know, if you've got money in ISAs, you can draw that tax free. You've got you know twenty two thousand a year you can have as a couple in earnings before you're paying any tax. You've got capital gains tax allowance. There's another 20000 a year you can do. So, you know, it would be quite feasible for him to generate maybe three, £4,000 a month without paying very much tax at all and certainly £5,000 a month without paying high-rate taxpayers. And suddenly people can find themselves with pretty much the same income as they had when they were working, but they're just paying an awful lot less tax. Right. 
something to look forward to. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, in this week's funds coverage, we look at the funds that could benefit from quantitative easing or QE. Now, this is an unconventional form of monetary policy where the central bank creates new money electronically to buy financial assets. And since 2008, the financial crisis, the UK, the US, Japan and Europe have all take, been taking turns to binge on cheap money via QE. Now, if you, do, you haven't been making investment decisions based on quantitative easing, uh, many experts think it could be time to start. And Kate, you've been looking at this issue. Um, what should investors be thinking about in terms of their strategy? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I started looking at it because when we talk about investing in different regions, QE has come up a lot recently or over the past few years, really, because it does have this major impact on markets. And it's been such a clear policy for so many regions. And it's particularly important now because the four regions that we talk about it most in relation to are going quite different directions. So we've got Europe and Japan, who have been most recently, you know, taking out QE. And then we've got the US and the UK, who did it earlier on and are now kind of, well, the US mooting rate rises and and we would expect the UK to follow at some point. So if we take the view that QE has quite an impact on markets, it has a strong impact on currencies, tends to devalue currencies, on bond yields, it makes some sectors uh, perform in different ways to others. Um, so if we take this view that, that it has these quite clear impacts on, on markets, on investments, it seems like a good idea to kind of think about where we'll be getting QE next and what that might mean for your investments. So I've had a, kind of broken it into a few different areas. One of the clearest things is currency hedging, because we've seen that on even on the announcement of QE, currencies tend to fall. And that's definitely been the case with the yen. That's probably the clearest case over the past couple of years um, since the beginning of economics. So we've seen that currency hedge share classes have really outperformed their standard kind of counterparts over the past two years. And the same was true for the euro um, recently. So if we are about to get more QE in Europe, it could well be a good idea to take out a currency hedge share class. So that's buy, buy a fund but make uh, that invest in one of these regions but make sure that the you buy the, the funds come in different share classes for mm. those who listeners who don't realize and some of the share classes on a fund will be hedged back into sterling yes. so you, you're not as affected by the currency yeah they're, they're basically nullifying that currency risk so if you think that you're investing in a country where that currency is really going to weaken if you didn't hedge hedge that then when you convert back to sterling you're you're making a loss there just on the currency without even um, thinking about what the market's done but if you if you hedge that out then you know you're you're not getting any of that currency fluctuation it does tend to be a little more expensive um, so that's something to think about but there are quite a lot of funds now where where the cost isn't you know that high and the performance has been really impacted so that's one thing to think about and another quite clear theme has been maybe changing your investment style or considering moving from a growth style to a value style and people have been talking about this quite a lot in relation to the US because when we when we get QE of what we find is that it kind of is a tide that lifts all boats in some senses um, so you get this kind of growth style where where you get quite fast appreciating assets I mean I should say that this isn't all this isn't kind of you get QE and this is a magic bullet there <laughs> all these things happen but it, it is a pattern I think so the US has been on this bull run and growth momentum styles have really worked well 
Um, but if we get rising rates, then arguably some of those companies whose share prices have been really inflated, we could see them fall off as this kind of stream of cheap borrowing it comes to an end. And so actually, this might be a good time to think about moving from a growth style into a value style, which looks for companies with really strong fundamentals, but who are kind of particularly cheap or on the market's overlooking at the moment. So we've got some kind of examples in in this piece of of good value style funds, which might be ones to take a look at now in the US. Cool. Um, James, do you agree with Kate's analysis? What what do you think investors should be thinking about in relation to these themes? Yeah, I think um, the the first analysis is spot on. And uh, you can see it in the figures year to date, actually. Uh, So if you look at... um, the MSCI, the, the 30 stocks European index, I think that's up about 7 or 8% uh, in its local currency. But at the same time, the pound has appreciated, I think, about 6 or 7% against the euro. So actually, you could have been in European, not been hedged for the currency, and you've actually only just seen your money stand still, you wouldn't have reaped the 7 or 8% return. So I think the currency hedging is, um, is definitely something to consider. Although, you know, typically what you'd see is... Um, currency is not falling as much as the equity markets rise so um you know if the market's going to do well out of qe which a lot of people think europe might well do um you know the the, some of the currency movement is probably already in the price as we say so it's already been done and therefore you know you may be not going to get such a good you know a kicker by um doing the currency hedge I think quantitative easing is really interesting and i I was with a, a friend of mine we were talking about it had a nice analogy his great-grandfather ran a business and i don't remember those screwdrivers that used to push the handle on that turned the thing Mm. he had a very nice business in the uk that did that and prior to that he was involved in munitions in the war and and during the war the government actually used to turn up at his doorstep every month with a pile of cash (laughs) Uh, and they were literally printing money uh, during the course of the Mm. war so that was you know somebody would print some money in in uh, in the government and give it to a manufacturing company that would then pay the staff and um, the money would literally drip locally into the into the community of course what we're doing now with quantitative easing is much more complicated nobody quite understands what they do and i think basically what they do is they buy uh, their own government bonds and they buy other bonds um, so they're depressing down interest rates and trying to lower the currency is the key things that they're trying to do so that slightly uh, the, the, there was one thing there in that last point about whether you go for for, for growth or income so you know what it's a good point about what's happening in the US but I, I think probably what people need to worry a little bit more about is that high yield sector in the in UK equities so or in equities generally so there's a lot of stocks um, and I can think of Unilever I can think of um, you know Shell other companies where it's all about the dividend people are buying them just for the dividend yield if interest rates start to rise in the UK and US that high yield blue chip space will probably go down um, because those those stocks are very much valued off a future cash flow. So as interest rates rise, their relative value is is less attractive. So uh, whereas, you know, the reason they're actually getting to reduce QE in the US and the UK is that actually economies are doing better. And so that would favor companies that are sort of more growing and growth companies. So, you know, if you look, the NASDAQ is the leading index in the US at the moment, which has got all the growth companies in it. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the energy space and some of the high yield is probably selling off a bit more. 
lots to think about there yeah. and it is it might sound a bit complicated not everyone needs to do currency hedging I should note you <laughs> no, know, right. it's, it's, some people can just <laughs> carry on investing as normal I think one thing I would say with all of these things normally. is you know uh, particularly if you're doing this yourself keep it simple I mean it doesn't have to be really complicated and um, there's some great investments in the UK that you can make there's some great you know U- European managers I mean I think that's probably an, an easier call than Japan to be honest if you're, you're going to do it because at least you get some dividend yield it's closer to home you're probably going to know that understand the names of the companies that you're investing in Whereas you start going off into Japan and places like that, you, you know, it, it's all a bit more mysterious. Well, thinking about mysterious, we're now going on to emerging markets where there could be lots more Chinese companies joining your emerging markets fund. Kate, can you explain what, what's happened with this? Uh, yeah, well, basically the MSCI has decided to add US-listed Chinese and in fact not just Chinese US listed stocks we call them American depository receipts so these are companies that might be from anywhere but listed in the US but it's interesting because it means that 14 um, Chinese stocks will now be joining the MSCI China and the MSCI emerging markets indices um, which is going to obviously bring up the amount of Chinese exposure in those indices and particularly to big Chinese tech names like Baidu and Alibaba um, so companies which have been kind of touted as big success stories and they're quite interesting ones but you know it will kind of change the nature of those indices slightly um, and we can expect their sector weightings to go from quite heavily weighted to financials that's probably going to come down a little bit and they'll be more exposed to tech um, and consumer which which the kind of majority of these Chinese companies are internet consumer companies so it's just it's just quite an interesting kind of shift of the index there I mean the MSCI has been considering and it's all been quite controversial they've been considering adding Chinese companies to these indices for a while um, and the big all the talk this year was about whether they were going to add domestic A shares though Chinese companies listed in China and they've decided not to do that earlier in the year I think just before the crash they're obviously been considering it for a while. And, I mean, having exposure to these ADRs doesn't mean direct exposure to the stock market. But, I mean, we saw that H shares, which are Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong, they were very affected at the time of the Chinese crash. So you obviously are, do have exposure to China, even if not directly though arguably to some quite interesting companies. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one, really. So th- this issue will affect you if you're in a, a tracker fund or an or a exchange-traded fund that's a passive investment that's tracking this particular index. It's not necessarily going to affect you if you're in an actively managed fund because a lot of fund managers will be uh, avoiding China for various reasons. James, what do you think about having more Chinese exposure? Would you be comfortable with that? Well, I think uh, there's massive differences between the Chinese equity markets and uh, um, the Western developed equity markets. Um, uh, firstly, the state owns most of the companies, so uh, so um, all of the stocks that are listed are part um, listed and part state owned, which is completely different. Um, and then you've got a market which is driven um, primarily in the in terms of its day by day movements by highly leveraged domestic investors. So the the, I mean, the Chinese just love to bet. Uh, they'll bet on anything and they love betting on the stock market and they do it big style with a lot of leverage so it, it, as a as an index in itself the chinese market is 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 pretty volatile difficult to understand uh, lots of people have gone there to try and make their fortunes and found it very very hard it's a difficult market to participate in and just overnight we had a five and a half percent drop in the main china index 
to do with two brokerage houses getting investigated and the amount of leverage going on. And so if the UK market dropped 5.4% overnight, everybody would be you know, thinking the world was falling in. Uh, but it's a regular occurrence on the Chinese market for it to move large amounts you know, on a daily basis. I think emerging markets as a whole is an interesting topic because it's it's been the disaster area really of, of the uh, you know 2011 onwards so it had quite a nice kickback after the crisis in 2008 2009 so it was one of the quickest recovering markets as everybody thought as things are going to recover emerging markets will recover really quickly but then it's been completely quogged down in the whole energy commodities area i mean there's always been a huge correlation between emerging markets and commodity prices and uh, we've seen as China's slowed down its uh, infrastructure spending, commodity prices have gone through the floor. And so there's a massive, massive gap opened up between emerging market performance and domestic market performance. Will it turn around? Uh (laughs) Well, on that note, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So thank you to Kate Bealey of the Investors Chronicle and to my special guest, James Baxter of Tideway Investment Partners. You can read more about the autumn statement, final salary transfers, QE and emerging markets in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.